Welcome to The Rebound, where we'll explore the issues facing supply chain managers as our industry gets back up and running in a post-COVID world. This podcast is hosted by Abe Eskenazi, CEO of the Association for Supply Chain Management, and Bob Troublecock, Editorial Director of Supply Chain Management Review. Remember that Abe and Bob welcome your comments. Now to today's episode. Welcome to today's episode of The Rebound, the state of the global supply chain. I'm Bob Troublecock. And I'm Abe Eskenazi. And joining us today is Nick Vias. Nick is an Associate Professor of Clinical Data Sciences and Operations at the University of Southern California, as well as the founder and the executive director of USC's Center for Global Supply Chain Management. ASCM, Abe's organization, recognized Nick as a supply chain leader in its Excellence Awards. Nick, welcome. Bob and Abe, it's great to be with you guys. It's great to have you, Nick. Uh, You know, between trade wars and tariffs, global supply chain managers were struggling to redefine and redesign their networks even before COVID. And while we appear to be making headway on the pandemic, and there's a new administration in the White House, the future of global supply chains is still uncertain. On the same day that the Suez Canal opened again for traffic, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal reported about ongoing trade tensions between the U.S. and China. What's more, both publications reported on China's budding efforts to forge trade alliances between other autocratic regimes, including Russia, Turkey, Iran, North Korea, and Colombia. Now, the idea was to counter U.S. and European alliances. But it reminded me of a meeting a specter in a James Bond movie where the world's bad guys plot global domination. So, Nick, I know you travel across the globe extensively every year and that you've been involved in supply chain initiatives in the past and current administrations. So how do you assess the state of global supply chains? So, Bob, when we look at the state of the global supply chain management, the COVID has certainly exposed structural issues that we have ignored for the last 30 years. So let me emphasize what do I mean by the structural issues. The conversations we're having today they're happening across the globe. The countries have found themselves that in, in the name of a mass productions, the cheaper, better, faster goods and services, we became overly reliant on a single country node, finding ourselves in a very vulnerable state. And what this has exposed us, that linear, faster, cheaper supply chain, really marginalized or the concept of resiliencies and redundancies of supply chain. This has created a two-pronged monster. From a supply chain standpoint, we look at this as an issue that we have to deal with in terms of the resiliency, which is what the supply chain professionals should be looking at. But the second issue, that this has created a China to be the most dominant player in building the future supply chain, both in terms of the physical infrastructure as well as the digital infrastructure. So we now see the Western democracies and allies finding themselves as to in a spot where they need to address this, both of these issues at the same time. Nick, you indicated that these are structural issues, indicating that they've been around for quite a while. So we've got the president issuing an executive order right now calling out for the review of supply chains. I think we all agree that the rhetoric is the right statements to be making about you know, our evaluation on the supply chains. But we're in the early stages. What can you, you know, discern from the executive order? And do you think that this is going to have an impact? Abe, I think one of the most impressive things that I found 
under this new administration is that they're staying away from the rhetorics and, and posturing on the trade, but they're actually going after the substance. So the executive order, what, what it's known as a 30 and 365 day review, is really an in-depth analysis of understanding the information and communication technology, ICT, industrial base, telecommunications, energy, some of the key verticals. And not only looking at the current supply chain, but understanding where the material is coming from, how are we sourcing, what technology platforms we're using. So taking this holistic look at the vulnerability of supply chain that we have taken it for granted over the last 30 years, this administration through the executive orders is really doing that in-depth holistic review. I think it's long overdue. And I think uh, at the end of it, if we as a country and the Congress come together as a United States of America, I think this can really fix or at least set the stage for us for next decades or so to reestablish and reemerge as a supply chain dominance in this area. Uh, Nick, you know, one of the words we hear over and over again these days is digital transformation. Um, I'm not sure that everybody knows what it means, even within their own organizations, and probably everyone defines it a little bit differently. But, you know, it's something everybody's talking about. And uh, my understanding is you uh, co-chair um, a, com a committee at the Department of Conference uh, looking at digital transformation. So as part of this broader supply chain initiative, what's your charge and what's the committee looking at? What are you going to try to accomplish? So the committee is really focuses on the competitiveness of the U.S. supply chain. How do we continue to stay engaged with industry best practices and keep America's supply chain competitive? So part of the objective is how do we come up with digital transformations and, and, and emerging technologies that we see and we've witnessed in our supply chain world in terms of the short, near-term, short-term and in the long term, what is it that we need to have in place to encourage the best practices, provide the policy guidance, and promote healthy incentives for a company to adopt these new measures? And combination of these things, hopefully we'll be able to put some recommendations together from Department of Commerce to the Secretary's office, which can then get integrated into the executive order review uh, under President Biden's big thing, I think, what we have to think about this digital transformation and the physical transformation through the infrastructure, both of these things has to really couple together and be married together. Often we look at this in a silo. What China has shown through the Belt and Road Initiative, that they first focused, the first phase of their BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, was to build the physical infrastructure, connect the roads, uh, waterways, and airways into the large continents across the world. But the second part of it, truly it's a digital transformation, it's building the standards, building blockchains and AI and ML, and really overlaying those on the physical infrastructure. So if you imagine now that you have a robust physical infrastructure and you have a digital infrastructure on top, and you then get to build the standards, and you get to then dictate what those standards will be, I think that could be a huge issues on the global trade if U.S. and its allies do not have some sort of a say-so, or not only say-so, but also to have some influence over what the standards should be that also takes into consideration all the democratic values that we cherish. 
So, Nick, I'd like to ask you a quick follow-up that kind of goes to what you were just talking about. Uh, if you remember, uh, a couple of years ago, you did two articles for me about global supply chains and how you were looking at the future uh, that you based on four compass points. And I just wondered, you know, one, if you can walk us through what those were, but then also how they might be influencing your thinking as you're part of the supply chain initiative. You know, Bob, it's ironic that we're now reflecting back a few years ago what we spoke about it, but those four distinct points that when we revisited, the four compass points were online marketplaces, global trade, emerging technologies, and omni-channel. So look, we're here in 2021, and each of these compass points are now more relevant post-COVID than they were before the COVID, right? So you think about online marketplaces and how much of that has played a significant role since we wrote this article. Um, I think Uberization of supply chain is just at the tip of the iceberg. We will continue to find ourselves that the marketplace-driven supply chain opportunities will continue to drive the optimization. We have still tremendous friction in our supply chain, laden with inefficiencies from sourcing to last mile delivery. We still have incredible amount of intermediaries and different touch points where people are still pushing papers in a 2021. So I think you're likely to see this trend continue to go there. The second point, which is global trade, more than ever, the COVID has exposed us that this conversation is real, right? The imbalance of global trade where the Western democracies for 30 years fell asleep behind the will can no longer be allowed. And how will this, this play into it? And I think we see the conversations not only in U.S., but globally, the global trade will become the center of the discussions. Emerging technologies, I think uh, if we look at and touch on that just briefly, the blockchain, AI, ML, and digitization as a whole, I think the COVID has created sort of a larger rate of participation because of the COVID that we had to accept the digital world as our real world. And we have done a good job of adapting to that. And last but not the least, the omni-channel. As we've seen the retail numbers, those with the click and a brick has done very well, especially starting out with the click on the online marketplace has been rewarded in handsome growth in the top line and the bottom line revenue. So I think reflecting on that article, obviously we didn't have the foresight of the pandemic, but I think all of those points are much more relevant post-COVID in our world. Nick, let me pick up on some of those topics. Um, Bob alluded to this in, um, in the setup for the conversation about the various alliances that are being developed uh, first with the U.S. and a lot of the Western um, countries, as well as China and some of their allies. Um, oftentimes we hear about uneven playing fields when government action or government partnerships are with private partnerships. So this is a particularly vexing issue when we're seeing some of the you know, discussion on tariff and trade wars, the National Defense Act, nearshoring, rearshoring. A lot of this has to affect global trade. So when we're seeing some of the friction that's occurring right now within the global theater, are we seeing this as a recurrence of what we saw in the 70s and in the 80s and the 90s uh, with oil and some of the you know, challenges that we saw with global you know, sort of positioning and posturing? Give me a sense of what you're seeing there. My view on this particular topic is even stretches back beyond 1970s, 80s, and 90s on the oil dependencies on some region. This goes even deeper than one particular sector or the commodity. 
I think it actually emanates from this concept in our Western democracies that the government is a bad thing, right? That we tend to have a connotation about the role of government, meaning the smaller it is, the better we are, right? Because we have this synonymous of government as a bureaucracy. What China has shown that you can actually be not democratic, but still be much more efficient in execution of your national agendas, right? And, and we see that, that as to how do we really strike this balance of a democratic values, but also encourage and participate in public-private partnership. So I think when we start to look at it, we're going to have to really have not only paradigm shift, but what I call paradigm break here to view this, that this has to be very collaborative efforts where the role of a government should be defined as somebody who facilitates the change, encourages the policies, and then also provides the resources and infrastructure and other essential elements for the society to become successful. And these are multi-pronged approaches. And we need to really reframe our thinking because we simply will not be able to solve the problems of the futures and building stronger supply chains in our world if we continue to operate from the same paradigms of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Nick, um, we've talked about a whole lot of things, many of which you know involve government, which a supply chain manager may think, well, I've got nothing to do with it. it, it it's out of my purview. So as a practical matter, you know, as the Biden administration is looking at supply chains, as we have you know, Department of Commerce committees looking at digital transformation. Why should that, this matter to us as supply chain professionals? Well, we as supply chain professionals owe not only to our company and our profession, but to the, our countries and the future generation. That infrastructure is the backbone of our supply chain industry. You simply cannot operate a first world supply chains with the third world, third world infrastructure. We, for the last 30 years, both sides of the political spectrum. We speak about infrastructure, the importance of it during the campaign year, and then nothing happens. So if we look at the state of our infrastructure, we are C or below grade on our roads, the highways, the ports, the innovations, the technology, R&D, to name few. And we simply cannot be the leader in a first world democratic society with ignoring the infrastructure. So we have to really talk about this, talk about and holding our government accountable for it. But when they step up to the plate, like the current plan for this administration of investing $2.1 trillion, we need to come as a united force in supporting the value of that investments for the future of supply chain. Because we simply individually cannot play the role at the highest level unless the ecosystem has been supported by the government as a whole. Nick, you're bringing up a really interesting point here, and you alluded to this in uh, one of your responses, that we really leaned ourselves into the situation here with just-in-time lower inventory costs and you know, efficiency and you know, deliveries almost daily. So we were focused on a very efficient supply chain, and in a lot of respects, we had a very efficient supply chain. What we weren't prepared for was obviously the pandemic and the just-in-case and the surges and the shifts in demand that occurred here. As we're responding, and as you pointed out, resiliency being a significant part of a supply chain manager's focus right now, 
in, how do you embrace resiliency and this focus on, you know, doing it right and doing good at the same time for the sustainability when the pressure, as you just described, is getting us back into some sort of normalization, whatever that may be. But again, all the data points are pointing towards, you know, fix it today, be agile, be responsive. Where does sustainability fit in this discussion? So Abe, I think one of the fundamental things we need to do is to de- redefine the total cost of ownership, the TCO. It's simply the TCO can never be now looked at it as a lowest cost of goods acquisition, which is what we have done for the last 30 years. We ship our sourcing strategy, our manufacturing strategy from point A to point B simply based on the cost, disregarding its environmental impact, its corporate social responsibility impact, and many of the things. So you think about the antecedent of our outsourcing started from things got tough here because we had a stricter environmental law. So we find the place where there is absolutely no regards to those environmental laws, right? We found here that we value some of the labor practices while we then go to the source where there is very little regard or complete disregard to this labor law. So when you start to factor those things in, of course you will, your TCOs the total cost of ownership in this case will be very cheap, and that puts a profit over the right equation. So I think what we're likely to see is that through a very holistic approach of redefining those, that the sustainability is not an option, but needs to be part of the variable that we've put that in the forefront, along with the cost, right? Corporate social responsibility can no longer be just a buzzword, but we need to put that into practice by showing that our supply chain network design incorporates those decisions. So when you start to add up all of these different variables, all of a sudden, your supply chain network design may look very different than for the last 30 years what we have practiced. Nick, I think we could continue this conversation on for another two to three hours and talk about all the challenges and opportunities that we have as supply chain managers. Thank you for your time today. Um, really appreciated your perspective and ongoing conversation. Uh, we hope you'll be back for our next episode. And for The Rebound, I'm Abe Ashkenazi. And I'm Bob Trebokak. All the best. Stay safe and healthy, everyone. Thanks. Thank you, Bob and Abe. The Rebound is a joint production of the Association for Supply Chain Management and Supply Chain Management Review. For more information, be sure to visit ASCM.org and SCMR.com. We hope you'll join us again.